Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Life Radio, we feature an interview with Greg Inhofer. Greg is a singer-songwriter, pianist, and vocalist who has played a significant role in the Minneapolis music scene and is a member of the Minnesota Rock and Country Music Hall of Fame. We talk with Greg about his early career with bands Pepper Fog, This Oneness, Olivia Newton-John, and Soldiers of Fortune featuring ex-Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura. We also talk to Greg about his recording experience with Bob Dylan for the Blood on the Tracks album, his part in the annual John Lennon Tribute Concert, his television and radio ad work, and his work as musical director for the writer Dick Wilson. We also get into some details about his personal rebirth after a turbulent personal life, where he almost quit music altogether. Greg also talks about his solo work and his new album, Music for the Upright Walking. His latest project showcases his talents from a man who has always been in a support role but now shines bright and features a mix of rock, rhythm and blues, and pop sensibilities over a jazz rhythm section. Sit back and relax and enjoy another episode of Music Live Radio, this one entitled Upright Walking. Welcome to uh, Music Live Radio, Greg. Glad to have you on the program today. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. We try to get a little bit of a bio of the artists that are on Music Live Radio, and I like to start really at the beginning. Where did you grow up? What were your musical influences? What kind of music were your parents listening to that uh, may have influenced you? And what other influences musically did you have when you were growing up? Um, I, I grew up in Minneapolis, born in North Minneapolis. I always used to say that when we were practicing out in the garage, Prince was one of the little kids sitting out in the alley listening. But I don't know if it, I don't know if it was really him. <laughs> but uh, I grew up in North Minneapolis. I, I don't remember my folks listening to much music. Um, I, I know my sisters listened to all the stuff I don't listen to: the Johnny Mann singers and and uh, Barbara Streisand and stuff like that. Um, but I, my, my mother had a friend who gave me an old Victrola and she had these 78 records in it and I used to play pots and pans along with them, (laughs) things like foxtrots and stuff. So when you, when you first started getting interested in music, what was your instrument of choice? What did you start to learn to play on? Well, I, I took, uh, I took piano lessons in grade school and, uh, pretty much at the end of it, I could, I could play something that I had remembered, uh, a recital piece or something like that, but it wasn't like a, an expressive instrument. It wasn't until uh, freshman in high school 
guy turned me on to a guitar and showed me how to play a one four five blues progression. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, the guitar became the expressive expressive instrument, and piano was just something I could I could sit down and you know and play some piece that I did in sixth grade. But uh, later on in in uh, high school, probably senior year, um, there was a song by Spirit called "Fresh Garbage," mm-hmm. and uh, the, it had it was electric piano and our guitar player. We had two guitars, myself and uh, Dale Strength. And uh, our guitar player uh, brought this Wurlitzer in that he got, and he wanted us to learn that song. So the bass player and I were in the same boat as far as we took lessons in grade school, but never really continued. And whoever could learn that that opening lick, do 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 do, whoever learned that first was going to play the piano on that song. And I learned it a, a, a millisecond ahead of Ron. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I might be a bass player today exclusively. <laughs> so, what what instruments do you play now? You do you play everything, or do you? Uh, no, just uh, guitar, bass. You know, some slide guitar, uh, piano mostly, and vocals. What was your first band? My first band was probably. It would have been. God, I, I'm trying to think if it was Liberty Three. Or if it was the Silhouettes, I think it was the Silhouettes. Now is that a high school band? Yeah, ninth grade. Oh wow! <laughs> Tenth grade was the guys. What, would you guys just do parties and? That band was. Uh, I was in a, a school up north, and so we played once a week for the student body. And then one time, somebody wanted us to play a dance in the little town near the school, and we stole a pickup truck from the school. We took the PA system, un- unhooked it from the walls in the gym, and, uh, and took it in, played the gig, and when we came back, the head of the school was sitting there with his dog as we're trying to put the PA back on the walls. <laughs> so we got caught. Yep. <laughs> we paid the price, but it was worth it. So tell us about the band Pepper Fog, and when did you get involved with that band? Um, I met Dale and Bob Strength through my friend Ron, a senior in high school, their, their band was looking for a second guitar and vocal, and I started playing with them. That was probably 67, and we played together. Well, we still play together. I still work with Dale and uh, Bob in the Dickens, and we've done a, a, just a ton of stuff. Pepper Fog was the, the final product of a number of na- names, you know, the rubber band, uh, Flight, eventually turned into Pepper Fog. And we played around here for, I don't know, four, four five, six years, in the, mostly in the Midwest. We went out to Salt Lake City for a little bit and came back. Here is Pepper Fogg with Please Let the Sun Shine.
was your next project after that band? Uh, I worked in some local bands. We eventually got a, a group called This Oneness started under the name Gold Street. Eventually it became This Oneness. And uh, it was uh, in the jazz rock fusion era, right after Miles did Bitches Brew. And every player on that session, uh, I just got the gold remastered last year. And every player on that session went on to form a fusion band in the 70s. Oh, wow. McLaughlin, he went on to do Mahavishnu Orchestra. Uh, Joe Zawinola and Wayne Shorter went on to do um, um, Weather Report. Oh, yeah. Uh, Larry Young and Fuel, Chick Corea and Return to Forever. I mean, all these offshoot bands came right directly from that session. So that's what, what this oneness was. We were doing original stuff, and we were doing... Our cover tunes were Weather Report, Return to Forever, and Mahavishnu Orchestra. <laughs> oh, wow. That was the band we were kind of doing um, when we hooked up with Olivia. Okay, yeah, and that leads me into my next question. Ooh, uh, a segue. Yes. How did you get involved with Olivia Newton-John? And uh, tell us the story of that experience going on tour, supporting her. We, we had a... Uh, another keyboard player who played sax and flute and uh, Robin Lee and Robin had gotten a call. We were doing our, our fusion band um, and he had gotten a call from some people uh, that this, this girl from Australia was here playing country music and she wanted him to play organ and he turned her down. And about three weeks later they called him back and said, would you and maybe a couple guys in your band want to do it? What had happened was when they came to town, uh, uh, they came here because Variety Artists was located here at the time. I think they're in L.A. now. Uh, Variety Artists was probably one of the bigger uh, college booking agencies in the country. And so they had booked her around the Midwest uh, on college tours. And she came to town to put the band together, and they, they immediately called you know the hot session players which were mostly jazz guys mm -hmm, yeah. and, and really didn't have a feel for country rock. So they were, they were having a lot of trouble. They had replaced a couple of people in the band and just weren't happy with how it was going. So Dale and Robin Lee went down to look at the charts and they heard the band in the other room rehearsing and Dale just looked at him and said, our whole band could do this better. <laughs> so they said, okay, and they fired the band that they'd been rehearsing for three weeks. Wow. Now, the, the tour started the next day oh. <laughs> in, in Brookings, South Dakota at a college. And uh, we, we bought her album at noon, uh, listened to it a couple of times. We went in and we rehearsed from 4 till about 11, 11.30, learned the charts, went home, packed up. Next day, a Greyhound bus picked us up at our farm. Um, we did vocal rehearsal on the bus on the way to Brookings, South Dakota, and played our first gig that night. And <laughs> she, got a, she got a standing ovation, and then everybody relaxed, and we were her band for almost two years. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> what did you do after that? I mean, eventually you went on to play with Bob Dylan, and how did that transpire? Um, it was, I was still playing with this oneness at the time. It was uh, uh, around the 75, I think, was when uh, we put out an album, this oneness called Surprise. And I was working uh, with another guy, Kevin Odegaard, locally here, and his manager was David Zimmerman, who is Bob's brother. Mm -hmm. And Bob, Bob had recorded the album in the fall, 
in New York with Eric Weisberg and Deliverance. And there was some cuts he wasn't happy with, and he recut them in Nashville with, uh, uh, what's his name, Cage. And, you know, the, the hot Nashville cats. He still wasn't happy, and this was right around getting to be Christmas time. The label was screaming for the record so they could get it under the Christmas tree. And he wasn't happy, and his brother suggested, he said, well, Bob, why don't you, you're coming home for Christmas. Uh, why don't you uh, record, record some stuff here? We've got a really good studio. Sound 80 was up and running, and Cat uh, uh, Stevens had just recorded Tea for the Tillerman here. And uh, Leo Kotke had done some things here. So he said, okay. They, they brought in the studio rhythm section, which was Bill Berg and, and Billy Peterson, both really good, not only good jazz players, but good all-around players. I had a, I had a moment recording the first day uh, that probably he- helped set the tone for me recording the rest of my life. Uh, we had just done... Uh, ja- the Jack of Hearts, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts from Blood on the Tracks. And I'm sitting in the studio watching Bob and Bill Berg, the drummer, and they're over by the, the studio monitor, and, and uh, Bill is explaining to Bob that he could either go doobadabadoobadabadoobada or dabadoobadabadoobadabadoo. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm going, this is Bill Berg. I mean, he played in a, a jazz group here in town. He and Billy called Natural Life, and they were like, you know, they were the the real stuff. You know, yeah. they they were the jazz cats. And uh, here's I, I saw Bill as this giant reservoir with a little spigot at the end, and he just gave the spigot to Bob and said, "Turn on as much or as little as you like." <laughs> and it it helped set the tone for me for any session I've ever done. It, whoever the producer or the writer is, whoever's responsible. I want them to be happy. It's not about whether I sound good. Uh, I would rather have people say, wow, what a great session, or what a great song, or what a great commercial, rather than what a crappy song, but boy, listen to that keyboard player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that just didn't, didn't suit me. So anyway, we, uh, we did a couple of songs on the Friday and got a call on Sunday that he liked them and he wanted to do some more. So we went back in on Monday and did three more songs. We ended up doing five songs total, and he uh, used all five of them on the record. So five out of ten songs were the Minneapolis musicians. Wow, what a great story. Did he give you any personal feedback on any of your playing? No, well, except for one, one thing. Uh, he had, uh, I was playing piano on a song, and I ended a phrase with you know, what we call a third in the bass. I don't know what your musical knowledge is, but you play a third in the bass rather than the root. And I ended up, I think it was, uh, you're a big girl now. And he said, hey, what's, what's that said? And I said, well, I just got a third in the bass. He said, yeah, I like that. Keep that in. <laughs> That's great. Any other stories from uh, that recording experience? He was a little distant. He had a cold. He just kind of sat there. At one point, he wrote the chords for Tangled Up and Blew Down on the margin of a newspaper and threw it on the organ and said, here's the chords for Nick's song. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, then Kevin suggested it wasn't going well, so Kevin suggested we move it from G to A, which is where the song ended up. And uh, Bob liked it better, and everything went, went smoother. So I, wrote, I rewrote the chords right next to Bob's. 
on this uh, piece of newspaper that I gave to a friend of mine. (laughs) She had it it framed. Oh, nice. That's great. (laughs) You've been pretty much a studio musician ever since then? Um, mostly more live than studio. Uh, okay. Studio work has has not been as as much up here. Or maybe I'm just getting old, and they're using the younger cats. You know? <laughs> it's, you've heard the old adage: uh, uh, "Who's Greg Inhofer?" The four stages of your musical career: Who's Greg Inhofer? Get me Greg Inhofer. Get me a young Greg Inhofer. And who's Greg Inhofer? <laughs> Full <Yeah>. circle. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure where on that circle I am. Probably in the Who's Greg Inhofer again. <laughs> well, that's good. Here is This Oneness with Amalgamated Funk. What other Minneapolis-based bands have you played with or been a part of? Oh my God, I don't have that many fingers or toes. Or, or actually, let's let's refine that. Uh, that has had a significant impact on you. Um, I played with the members of some of the members of Crow after Crow broke up. Crow had a, a top ten uh, Billboard single nationally called "Evil Woman" years ago. Um, and when they broke up, some of the members of the band had a group around town here called Cola. And uh, we did a, a rhythmic, funky kind of a club thing, but it was it was not a top forty club thing. And we were doing things like uh, Brian Auger and the Oblivion Express and uh, War and and stuff like that. Oh, okay. But uh, locally, I worked with. Uh, here's a story. Do you remember Phil Solom and the Rembrandts? Do you remember the Rembrandts? They did the uh, 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 music for Friends. Oh, yeah, certainly, yes. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Okay, this is Phil Solomon. Uh, he had a group up here called Phil Solomon the Rembrandts. And uh, one day, the other three guys, or the other two guys, myself and the other two guys, we were starting to call each other going, hey, have you heard from Phil? No, I haven't heard from him for a couple of weeks. Boy, me either. And then the next thing we heard, um, he was coming out with a record called the Rembrandts out in uh, in LA 
and he had hooked up with an old friend of his, uh, 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 what I can't remember his name, Wild, something Wild, from a group they had in L.A. called Great Buildings. And uh, they, they recorded some stuff in Danny, Danny Wild in his garage. And that was uh, the original stuff for I'll Be There For You uh, on Friends. Yeah, certainly. So he, he did well with that. Yeah, definitely. And there's no hard feelings. <laughs> it was a really fun band while it was going. Yeah. Any other stories from your time playing in bands in Minneapolis? Well, it wasn't in Minneapolis, but in 1980, um, I wrote a club band that was going to be having five weeks out at the, uh, uh, what's the Bonaventure Hotel. And so my wife and I decided to move to L.A. and just use that five weeks of at the Bonaventure as a stepping stone. And Olivia's uh, producer, John Farrar, got me hooked up with Peter Noon. Peter Noon was uh, Herman's Hermit. He mm-hmm. was Herman. And he had a new band called The Tremblers. He wanted to start recording an album. And so I got hooked up with Peter and immediately went back and toured the Midwest when we were done with the record. So I, I moved to L.A. only to come back and tour the Midwest. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> what about this project that I read about on your website, Soldiers of Fortune with Jesse yeah. Ventura? That's right. <laughs> I worked with Jesse for about eight months. <laughs> can you describe that experience? I, I can sum it up in, in, in one sentence or one phrase that you probably won't be able to put out on the air. But we'd, it was kind of a heavy metal kind of a vibe, you know, with the black leather. And the, I was playing bass with him, and my friend Bob Strength was on drums. And it was that dum 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 And Jesse would come out with his... Uh, boa and his sunglasses and he'd grab the mic and he'd say all right i'm not here to wrestle and i'm not here to commentate on wrestling i'm here to rock and roll and if you don't like it you can get the fuck out (laughs) that's how he opened his show (laughs) i had no idea he did something like that so it was it was just kind of a rock and roll spoken word performance thing that he was doing or uh it was stuff like uh hey babe take a walk on the wild side yeah Kind of like a William Shatner style. A little bit. <laughs> but he, he's an interesting guy. He's, no. <laughs> that, he's what, interesting. When was that? What time frame was that? Oh, man. Now you're going to... I heard I had a good time in the 70s, and I heard the <laughs> 80s weren't bad either. Um, it was in the 80s. Okay. So, <laughs> is, that, but, is that enough? <laughs> yeah, that's good enough. I, I just was curious about it. <laughs> now, you also organize a John Lennon uh, tribute show every year. Can you talk about that? I do not organize it. A guy locally here that uh, one of his claims to fame, he has many. He is uh, the Dean of Scream, they call him. He's, he's, we've known him since high school. He's our age. And uh, his name is Curtis A. And uh, last year on John Lennon's birthday, Rolling Stone mentioned two gigs that were being done on John Lennon's birthday. One of them was by Yoko Ono in L.A., and the other one was by Curtis A. at the 331 Club in Northeast Minneapolis. He started doing this the day Lennon got shot. He was watching the football game. He heard, uh, uh, heard the announcement. He had a gig to do that night at midnight, one set. And he got to the gig, and he said, we're doing all John Lennon songs. And it, it's been continuing ever since then. We're, we're about to do the 31st annual. I've been doing it for about eight years now. This will be my eighth year. And it just has grown and grown every year. Um, 
to where it, it it's a spectacular thing. Uh, it's my favorite gig of the year, bar none. It's just such a feeling. Everybody, you know, each year will go. All right, now on this song, let's let's finally get this vocal part right. Or <laughs> let's, you know, everybody plays the parts, and it's just, sometimes there's up to twenty, twenty four people on stage. You know, a, a little four four five piece string section, a horn section, uh, three electric guitars, two acoustic guitars, two drummers, percussionist, uh, keyboards, all these people on stage, and we try and recreate the different phases of John Lennon with different size bands. You know, the, the stuff he did with the Beatles, the stuff he, his solo stuff, uh, the psychedelic Beatle era. Uh, except Curtis, <laughs> he won't do any, any McCartney stuff. So in the middle of Day in the Life, instead of uh, doing the woke up, got out yeah. of bed, we go into a piece of uh, uh, we can work it out. <laughs> uh, okay. Because that's a Lennon song. Uh-huh. But that's all Curtis A's baby, and it, it just keeps growing and growing every year, and then everybody really looks forward to it. Is it part rehearsed and uh, part improv, you know, with all those people on stage, or do you guys get together before the show and work work everything out? Yeah, we, we rehearse every Sunday in November and every Sunday in, in December until um, the 8th. It's always done on the 8th. That's the day he was shot. And so every year, regardless of the night of the week, it's on the 8th. And we, we, we rehearse, but it, the rehearsal gets a little easier every year because it's not like he's writing more songs. No. And, and, and we're doing them pretty much trying to do them verbatim, just out of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, people want to hear those songs. They, I, I remember my first year that I did it, um, they have a couple of guitar players who double on keyboards and that's what Kurt has always had always used on keyboards was the guitar players who doubled on keys. And uh, when he brought me on board, it was he had said he wanted to have one guy just to do the rhythm piano, the Lennon rhythm piano all night long. So that was me. And uh, we did Dear Prudence that year. And there's a little piano thing at the end of Dear Prudence. <laughs> And so I did that, and this guy came up to me on the break and said, Oh, man, he says, I've been coming for 10 years. I've been waiting for 10 years to hear that little piano part on the end of Dear Prudence, man. (laughs) (laughs) It was awesome. Well, that's great. Any other magical moments um, while you've been doing the Lennon Tribute shows? Every year is different. One year, one year was during uh, <laughs> during she's so heavy, and then to look over on stage and see Kurt walking around like Frankenstein, you know, during the end of she's so heavy, that was pretty cool. That was a moment. And then when he said fire, good. <laughs> but every every year the moments change. Uh, I I get a, usually get a moment. He he usually has one. McCartney song and last few years I've been getting to do uh, Here, There and Everywhere because he said that that's John's favorite Paul song. Oh, oh that's cool. But he's a, he's a Beatle aficionado. Now you've also arranged several musicals. Can you tell us about how you got involved with doing that type of work? I got involved. Uh, there was another guy who was doing the arranging and uh, I was bass player in the pit for a couple of musicals that he had arranged. And we work with this guy, Dick Wilson. He's in his 70s. He's been writing musicals since the 60s. 
he was real big in the uh, development of uh, Carmichael Methune, I think it was, here in town, uh, advertising agency uh, in the 60s. He wrote some things like he wrote the, the words to the twins song, We're Gonna Win Twins, We're Gonna Score. Oh, wow. He wrote uh, uh, Ham's Beer. From the land of sky blue rock. So oh, yeah. <laughs> he did a lot of, he, oh, you remember uh, uh, Northwest Orient? And they had a gong. Northwest Orient. Dun, dun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. He said it took him all day in a warehouse in New York to find the right gong to go in there. But that's what he was doing in the 60s, and he was also writing these musicals. But he doesn't play an instrument, he doesn't sing, he doesn't read or write music. So he's always needed a musical interpreter to kind of be his liaison between uh, uh, what, he, what he's what he got in his head and uh, what he wants. Hmm. So when his guy quit or, or something, I guess he moved out of town, um, I took over. I've been doing it for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And uh, he's just a, a, an amazing guy. I would almost say a savant. That's why I put on my record. He's quirky, unpredictable, and brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll bring in his little tape recorder and, and, you know, oh, okay, this one goes like this. Uh, what would be the worst that could happen if the next time we felt afraid? And I'd be at the <laughs> piano and I'd say, you mean, uh, what would be the worst that could happen if the next time we felt afraid? Yeah, 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 yeah that's it. <laughs> and, uh, I'd be playing a chord and he'd say, that third chord is wrong. And say, oh, how about this one? No, no, no. Yeah, 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 that one. So he he knows what he wants to hear. Yeah. And uh, he just doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't know how to speak the language. He just needs an interpreter. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm his interpreter for right now. Yeah. Now, you mentioned commercials, uh, and you've also done some commercials. Can you share with us some of the commercials you've uh, been a part of? Um, probably the biggest one for me was a General Mills ice cream cone cereal in the eighties. Uh, they played that puppy after every, every break on every kid's TV show on all channels. (laughs) Wow. And boy, that was nice. (laughs) Cause I did, I did not only the lead vocal, but I did the, uh, the announcer guy, uh, Ice Cream Jones was his name. Little cones and puffs that look and taste like chocolate chip ice cream cones. <laughs> Have you ever thought about getting into any more voiceover work like that? There, there is really dried up. I'd love to. I would. I've always had a dream to uh, to do animated voices, but a number of years ago now, you know, they just want the voices of people that they already know. You know what I yeah. mean? Justin Timberlake and, and actors and things like that have pretty much cut down the regular voiceover work guys, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't have a name to go along with it, but that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, I'd love to do uh, cartoons. That would be my dream job would be going into a place and just watching animation and doing the voices. So if you're listening out there, <laughs> you've got your man <laughs> I'm here. I'm ready to commit. Now, you're, in your bio, it indicates that you went through a turbulent time in your life, and you were almost at the uh, verge of quitting music. Can you talk about that? Sure. I was just, uh, everybody's got their low, everybody's got their rock bottom, and I, uh, I had hit mine. And, you know, we were 
we were just about to turn that car on the way home from a gig into a, a bridge pylon. And I think it was my kids thinking of my kids that, that pulled me back and I, I just couldn't leave them with that kind of a legacy. And, uh, I was living in a situation where I, I was totally miserable. Um, just about ready to quit music. And interestingly enough, this drummer, a friend of mine, Bernie Percy, he lives in L.A., he works with, uh, with a variety of people. And uh, he called me up one day. He was coming to town to play a show with Eric Burden, but I couldn't go to the show that night uh, I was gigging. So he called me up and he said, talked for a long time, and he said, well, I, I got to tell you about this, this vision I had. And he said a few weeks earlier, he had uh, stepped out of the bathtub and fell down on the floor and was paralyzed for a couple hours. And he had this vision, and this was the second time he'd had this vision. The only difference was at the end of it, a voice spoke to him. So he said, in the vision, Bernie and I were, were soldiers in the Napoleonic era. We had blue and gray uniforms, but it was cannonballs and bayonets. And he didn't know what country we were, we were from. But we had apparently made a pact at a, at a local church that we would watch each other's back and make sure we both made it home from the war. Well, a cannonball came over the hill, hit one of our cannons. The wheel flew up in the air and pinned Bernie to the ground. And he, he waved his head for me to go. And I went. So in doing so, we both broke this pact. And uh, apparently, according to the voice at the end, a metaphysical filter of some sort was put over our lives so that we wouldn't get all the good things that we deserved. And when he had this vision a second time, at the end, the voice said, the dad is repaid, the filter is lifted, tell Greg. So, take it for what it's worth. That was the moment after I heard that, that I started looking around going, what the hell am I doing? Hmm. I'm a musician. <laughs> and I, I made plans to uh, to get out of the situation I was in and haven't looked back since. That was uh, towards the end of 2004. And it was uh, 2005 that I, that I started writing again. I had been out where I was living for four years and wrote one song. And then songs just started pouring out, uh, tumbling out in the middle of the night, sitting up at the piano. Uh, all, most, uh, most of the stuff off my first CD was... They just tumbled out, sitting there, you know, naked in the middle of the night at the piano and, and telling myself to slow down because the lyrics were coming too fast. And that was how the first record came about. It was, a, I guess, a purging of, uh, of my life. Here's Problems by Greg Inhofer off of Music for the Upright Walking.
Here's a question I'd like to ask everybody. What does music mean to you? Music? Wow. I have a song called Hush on my first record. And one of the lines is, I didn't choose music, music chose me. It's not like, you know, people say, oh, how did you become a musician? It's like, well, I went to my guidance counselor in senior year <laughs> and uh, he said I could be a lawyer and 150k or i could be a doctor and make 200k oh here's one you could be a musician and make 20k for the rest of your life oh man that's for me (laughs) sign me up at this point in the interview we lost our internet connection and had to reconnect via the phone just wanted to let you know because the audio quality does change no big deal though we just pick up right where we left off when i was uh, about seven or eight my uncle gave me a plastic emony trumpet and I'd never picked up an instrument before in my life, and I just pulled it out of the box and played taps and reveille and all this other stuff. So I've, I've always been drawn to it my whole life. Uh, it, it's, it's a vocation. It's not a job. It's not even a career, even though I say on my website I'm building a career one person at a time. It's, uh, I found it, I used to think of myself as a musician, but you know, after my, my kind of rebirth six years ago, it's something I do, but it's something I have to do, you know, whether, whether there's anybody listening or not. You know, that's why I, can, I, I play the same in front of one person as I do in front of a thousand. So what I actually wanted to get into then is after your rebirth, so to speak, what is your philosophy on life these days? All roads lead to now, and I'm very happy now. Excellent. What advice would you have for aspiring musicians? If if you're doing it for the money or the fame, good luck with that. Uh, you know, I, I mean that, you know, because it's, it's an awful crowded field. But if you're just doing it for the love of what you do, you know, uh, the cream will always rise to the surface, whether anybody knows it or not. Tell us about your current band, the members, their backgrounds. Uh, the band is the Cockeyed Band. It's Greg Inhofer and the Cockeyed Band. Uh, I've got a bass player, local bass player. There, everybody's living here. Um, Charles Fletcher, he's a teacher over at uh, McNally Smith over in St. Paul, played with Lamont Cranston, Willie Murphy, a lot of local, regional things. He's just a wonderful bass player and a wonderful guy. Got Eric Kamau Gravat on drums. Uh, Eric is a jazz drummer, and the music is not necessarily jazz. Um, you know, I, I suppose one tune on there I would call jazz, uh, the instrumental tune. But Eric played with uh, Weather Report in the 70s, and he most recently, as of last year, was touring with McCoy Tyner around the world. But he lives here. 
and I've known him since he was in Weather Report. Um, he was married to a, a friend of ours, and he always he said something years ago. He said he, when he was at his heyday in Weather Report, we were talking one time, and he said he he really liked the Cars, the group, the Cars, because the drummer kind of turned the beat around and switched his parts up and did some interesting things. So uh, a little over a year ago when I was putting this project together, I thought, well, what the heck do I have to lose? I can ask probably, arguably, one of the top 10% jazz drummers in the world to play on my CD. So I did. Yeah, good choice. He said, it's all music, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So tell us about your first solo album. That was, uh, I recorded it live. After all these years of playing, I, I had never done a CD for myself. I've, I'd always been part of bands um, that had done some recording or this or that, or I played on other people's CDs. I had never done one for myself, so that was my, my first CD, and I figured it should be the way I feel now is I, I can't write a song a song isn't a song unless I can sit down at the piano and play and sing it by myself. And then it becomes a song, and then you dress it up and you produce it. In my earlier years, I would write, and then I would get too caught up in the production. And the melody line would end up going, la, 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 la. But it would have all this cool production around it. And it really didn't speak to anyone. And it's all about connection now. Melody, melody connects with people. It always has, and it always will. Um, matter of fact, I learned a lot about melody from uh, the guy I do the uh, musicals with, because he's old school, old school melody, you know, show tune kind of melody. And he's the one that pretty much uh, taught me about the melody driving the song, as opposed to the song driving the melody. I can get behind that. How about your current release, uh, Music for the Upright Walking? Yes, that uh, happened over the last uh, 14 months. We just did a CD release gig at the Dakota in Minneapolis, which is a jazz room. And like I say, it's not really jazz. I think my producer, Dale Strength, put it best when he said, Stevie Dan was jazz changes over a pop rhythm section. And this project is more pop changes over a jazz rhythm section. Ah, okay. I know somebody asked me, they said, I think the drums are too loud. And, and I <laughs> said, well, I said, I think the drummers most of the time aren't playing anything interesting enough to be loud. <laughs> you know, if they're just chopping wood, they're just chopping wood. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Eric plays around with the music more. And it's just more interesting to me the way he approaches uh, more poppy pop music is just really interesting to me because he, he approaches it with a good heart and he has no attitude about you know it not being jazz. I actually play in a a hard rock I'd say kind of borderline punk rock hard rock and our drummer is a jazz trained drummer. And he really mixes in some very interesting things into the yeah. into the mix. I'm really I, mean, I can't imagine playing with anybody else. He just really brings something u- really unique and fresh to to you know, exactly. you know the traditional rock. Uh, did you know that Mitch Mitchell was a jazz drummer before the Hendrix Experience? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, 
So it's got that kind of, uh, matter of fact, I covered a Hendrix song, and we did it as a trio with just bass, drums, and piano, because uh, I wanted to cover a Hendrix song with no guitar. Because what are you going to say on guitar? You know, as a guitar yeah, exactly. player. You, <laughs> <laughs> You're going to try to outshine? <laughs> uh, yeah. So we did it with just bass, drums, and, and piano. And that's a Manic Depression on your album, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. Manic Depressions captured my soul. I know what I want, but I just don't know how to go about getting it. Feeling sweet feeling drops from my fingers, fingers. Manic depressions captured my soul. Woman so weary, sweet cause in vain. What is uh, one of your favorite songs on this album? I like the ballads, but I, 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 I've been... Problems, I think, I like a lot. The third cut. I, I like the way the drums play around, the verses in seven and the choruses in four, and I like how Eric kind of accents different parts of it, and it just keeps it driving forward so it doesn't feel awkward um, like a seven. It just keeps driving forward on the quarter note. And he plays it very interestingly. What else do you have going on? Uh, you mentioned that you're playing in another band with uh, Dale. Uh, do you have anything else to promote? Just, if people want to check out my CD and pick it up, that would be great. I'd, I'd love for it to eventually someday pay for itself. That would be even greater. But, you know, I hope somebody can maybe find a song that, that speaks to them. Um, there's a lot of styles on there which is another reason why I wanted the same rhythm section on the whole project, to give it a little more cohesiveness between the styles. Um, I think If I Wore a Hat is also one of my favorites. It just turned out really well. Did you write that song in remembrance of your friend Jeff Hill? Yeah. What had happened, uh, they had, he had passed away a couple of summers ago from esophageal cancer and put up a good fight for a long time. And he was just one of those guys, he owned a music store, so a lot of the musicians in town uh, knew who he was. About a month before, he, he, they had a memorial for him downtown, and about a month before, they asked if I'd come and play, and I said, yeah, great. I said, I think I'll, I'll try and write a song for him. And uh, I came up with the title, If I Wore a Hat, and that's all I had for a month. I, I worked on it three, four times a week, and I couldn't come up with anything more than that. And the day of the memorial, I was supposed to be down there at 5 o'clock. About 1 o'clock, I said, I'm going to give it till 3. And if I don't have anything, I'll just play something else. And I gave it till 3, and by 3 o'clock, the whole song had tumbled out. And I played it uh, two hours later at this show for the first time. 
And uh, that's up on YouTube for anybody who's interested the very first time. And then the uh, when I did the CD, I put the whole band to it, complete with a New Orleans Little Horn section. So that's one good YouTube video. Is there any other ones that you would recommend uh, people take a look at? Well, I've got some weird stuff. Uh, I played a little piece of Broken Boss on a piano on the street over in St. Paul last month, and uh, Lucas Lucas got it on his phone. They just, <laughs> they've got this program going where they've got pianos on the street, and anybody stops and plays them, and I found this little red piano and all the keys were uh, painted red and so I, I just sat and played it for stood and played it for a little bit and Lucas grabbed it on his phone and put it up on my website can you tell us what your website is www.greginhofer.com two g's one f one other question what is something that people would not know about you something maybe not music related a, a a hobby or a pastime not related to music that you're interested in? Oh, man, I thought I thought we'd skate by that one. I was, <laughs> I was thinking, what, what can I tell them that I wouldn't want to remain a secret? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what would people know? That I'm a father, that I love my kids. I have uh, three sons, two sons and a stepson, and uh, 29, 31, and... 14. Are any of them interested in music? My 29-year-old is a guitar player. He was in a band called With Dead Hands Rising. They toured around the country for a while. Yeah. Um, now they're working on a project called Summoner. And it's of the seven-string guitar, you know, metal. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand the vocals, <laughs> but I really like the music. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, musically, it's almost almost classical the way they they don't solo like a guitar player solos in a rock thing. Mm-hmm. It's very orchestrated and, and harmonies and, and counterpoints and really interesting stuff. Yeah, very technical, very advanced. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's funny. I went to see them one night, and they were in between in between bass players, and with the low strings on the guitar, it was two guitars, drums, and their singer. And with the way they mix the, the kick in that style of music, the kick is very upfront. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't miss the low end. I kept looking around and I thought, why aren't I missing the low end? There's no bass player. <laughs> but I didn't miss it. All right, what is next for you? Um, we're doing some video stuff for Dale Strength and the Dickens. We're looking at uh, doing a video uh, of Spread the Word off of Music for the Upright Walking. I'm working on a deal to uh, through Wells Piano in St. Paul um, to get in touch with the High Loon people. High Loon makes a piano in China, and I'd like to go do a two, three-week tour of China. Oh, that would be fun, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. So I, I, that's something we've got kind of in the works right now. All right, thanks again, and have a great night, Greg. Thanks, Dan. You too. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Greg for being on the show. We're going to leave you with one more song of his. This one entitled, If I Wore a Hat. This is his tribute to Jeff Hill. They say when life gives you lemons, just make lemonade. But that's so easy for them to say when they're all sitting in the shade, sipping their long toes. 
connection that they may have had with anyone. But you always knew how to live life in style. And you always knew how to make a sad man smile. And you understood how to make each day brand new. So if I wore a hat, I'd take it off. Take it off to you. Sometimes things can happen, and I almost lose my mind. I try to get ahead, and I end up fifty steps behind. But you had a calmness and a steady, even keel. Take it off to you. If I wore a hat, I'd take it off. Take it off to you. If I wore a hat, I'd take it off to you. If I wore a hat, I'd take it off to Thanks again for listening to Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Make sure you check out Greg's website. Pick yourself up a copy of Music for the Upright Walking. We'll leave you with the final thought or question, I should say, from Bob Dylan. Hey, what's, what's that said? And I saw I just got a third in the bass. He said, yeah, I like that. Keep that in. <laughs>